Hey folks, welcome back to the show. Today we have someone who needs very little introduction in the statistical community, Lisa Lavange of UNC FDA ASA fame, and headliner of many other acronyms, I'm sure as well. Um, Lisa will be giving a keynote at the upcoming Orange County Biostatistics Symposium to talk about adaptive and innovative trial design and master protocols and the FDA initiatives that surround those. Um, it's a really exciting area. And it's fun because today, Lissa lets us put on our scientist and statistician hat to think about how we're really conducting clinical inference. So this will be really fun, and we're going to quickly jump into our little intro jingle and then on to Lissa Levange. So welcome, Lissa. Perhaps for the non-statistical audience, you could just introduce yourself and a little bit of your work. Thank you so much, Glenn. I really appreciate this and um, am thrilled to be here on your podcast. I am looking forward to the Southern California Conference as well. My recent, I'm, I'm at the University of North Carolina now. I'm a a uh, professor of biostatistics. I'm associate chair in the Department of Biostatistics, and that's located in the Gilling School of Global Public Health at UNC Chapel. And I've been here for a couple of years. Um, the the uh, job prior to that, I was at the Food and Drug Administration. I was director of the Office of Biostatistics in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. And I spent uh, a very exciting and a busy six years at the FDA leading a group of over 200 statistical reviewers and working with lots of colleagues across the other disciplines represented in CEDAR, the Center for Drugs. Prior to that, I was at UNC Biostatistics, so I just came home, I guess, a couple of years ago. And prior to that, I worked in nonprofit research and also the pharmaceutical industry for a number of years. So I've had exposure to all three employment sectors right? Government, academia, and industry. And throughout all of those, I've had a lot of opportunities to lead statisticians in multidisciplinary settings. And as you know, if you followed my ASA term as president in 2018, statistical leadership is a, is a pet project of mine. So maybe we could do another podcast on that. <laughs> but today, and at the Southern California Conference, I want to talk about um, some initiatives at FDA that began when I was there, and they revolve around complex innovative trial designs with the idea of finding safe and effective medicines more quickly or more efficiently or more accurately uh, characterized to, um, to get to patients who have a particularly unmet medical need. There is a mechanism by which the FDA gets part of its funding called the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. And the sixth incarnation of that was passed through Congress in 2016. I had the good fortune to be on the negotiating team at FDA for what we call PDUFA 6. And I introduced a project called Complex Innovative Designs, um, the CID project. The idea was to um, get the word out that FDA was encouraging sponsors to uh, come to us with more innovative trial designs, not be afraid that FDA would not be welcoming to innovation and creative ideas. Um, we set up a pilot program 
and for the pilot sponsors, pharmaceutical sponsors could propose complex innovative designs and get more frequent interactions with FDA reviewers. In exchange, FDA reviewers were able to talk about the designs in public as an education tool, because one of the problems at FDA was you, you really can't talk publicly about anything that's under review. So until a drug is approved and in the public domain, or if it goes to an FDA advisory committee and it's in the public domain, at least as far as those presentations go, um, it's hard for FDA reviewers to say, this is a great design, this is not a great design, this is what we can see. So part of the pilot was for us to be able to talk about the uh, pilot designs in, and point out in public settings so that all sponsors could hear us um, what aspects we liked and what we did. The other part of the CIB project in Paducah was for FDA to produce guidance. And just before I left, we had finished drafting uh, a revised adaptive design guidance. It came out in draft form in 2018, and it was finalized last November 2019. It's an excellent document. Um, I strongly encourage people who are interested in adaptive designs to read it. It's very accessible, uh, has a good list of references, and it lays out the areas of innovation that FDA welcomes and also some principles of sound study design that any innovative design or non-innovative design should follow. Since I left, a second guidance related to that uh, complex innovative design project came out and it was about how to interact with FDA when you do come in with a protocol that has a, a novel design. And I should say the complex innovative design title was, was used in the PDUFA 6 negotiations simply to mean any trial design about which the operating characteristics required computer simulations. You could not an analytically derive the power, the type 1 error probability, uh, basic operating characterization, uh, characteristics. A simple parallel uh, group randomized trial does not require simulations. We can compute the power and the type 1 error probabilities for such a design. Uh, just using math. Um, but when you get into um, designs that are adaptive, uh, that may be phase two or three, phase two and three seamless designs, that may uh, be a fully Bayesian design using prior information, maybe a frequentist design, but um, adapting as you go on endpoint or target population or sample size. Um, some of these designs can get quite complex and require uh, computer simulations to characterize them. That's the simplest definition of complex innovative design that we would use. Now, since that time, and in that second guidance that came out recently about interacting with FDA on the CID program, there have been a list of types of designs that FDA has seen. There was a public meeting um, last Monday, March 2nd and 3rd, Monday and Tuesday, uh, hosted by the Drug Information Association in conjunction with FDA. And it was the first um, public meeting to talk openly about the CID pilot program. FDA speakers reported that they had accepted four um, study designs into the pilot program, and they talked about two of those at the meeting. And one of those was a master protocol. So master protocols are um, came out of the precision medicine movement. Um, and we're focused in oncology. Oncology is where we saw an explosion of medicines uh, that were being developed and really making use of what we knew about tumor types and targeting 
treatment to specific tumor types. The, the concept of precision medicine is to get the right product to the right patient at the right dose and the right time. And as medicines become more and more precise, there's a, you know, it's very exciting because you can, you can target the patients that you should have the highest probability of working for. Um, but as we target patients more finely, it actually becomes harder to run a clinical trial because you're going after a smaller group of very homogeneous patients. And recruitment can be quite challenging. It was in this kind of setting that the interest in master protocols came out um, from the sponsor side because recruitment was becoming challenging from the FDA side because we saw in the marketplace that more than one company were competing for the same smaller subset of patients that their drugs would target and were hoping to you know, help do something about that. And from the patient side, um, there was some frustration that patients would enter a trial, they would get screened for the particular tumor type or disease subtype or mutation that that particular trial was investigating. They would find that it wasn't a match. They'd go to another trial, go through the similar screening, maybe find they weren't a match. And sequentially trying to get screened and found to be eligible for a trial was quite time consuming and resource consuming for patients. So all of these forces from the sponsors, the patients, and the FDA sort of came together, and the idea grew that you could study more than one drug for a targeted subgroup of patients in a single trial with enough collaboration and infrastructure building to make it happen. Now, this goes a little bit against the commercial marketplace because sponsors want to get to market quicker with their drugs, but it you know, the hope was that the payoff of getting recruitment more quickly um, would more would make up for that. So Dr. Woodcock, Janet Woodcock, she is the director of CEDAR, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, and uh, just a tremendous force for um, finding safe and effective medicines for patients in need. She and I um, wrote a paper in the New England Journal in 2016 about master protocols, and the message from that paper is quite clear that FDA was really advocating for collaborative research efforts like this uh, so that patients could get access to different treatments and could be found more quickly and efficiently uh, to be a match for a particular trial. The idea is that patients would come into a master protocol and have a common screening platform. There would be multiple therapies being tested in the protocol. The eligibility match would be discovered just through this one common screening. So all of the biomarkers that would identify the different subgroups of patients would be um, tested in that screening. And patients would then find out which drugs they were eligible for. And through some mechanism, usually random, uh, but or possibly just a perfect match, patients would go off to the subtrial or get assigned to the treatment um, that would be most likely to work for them. And this was a real plus in the eyes of patients compared to sequentially trying trial after trial after trial to come up with a match for their particular tumor type. The most famous um, master protocol is iSpy2. It's an adaptive platform trial in neoadjuvant breast cancer. It's been going on for quite a long time. And it has this feature that it is a platform trial, that it could just go and go. Um, drugs come in, drugs leave, they either graduate to be studied for uh, marketing in a phase three trial, or they graduate um, and 
or they don't graduate and they're found to not have a high probability of success in further study. So they stop uh, making room for new drugs to come in. The study uses adaptive response, adaptive randomization, which is a little bit controversial, but um, with the right precautions, I think it's been quite successful in iSpy2. And then um, when I was at FDA, the FDA collaborated with the Friends of Cancer Research and the NCI on the LungMap Master Protocol, which has now been running for five years. Um, LungMap was for lung cancer, and it started with five drugs. It was an adaptive design. It was meant to uh, establish safety and efficacy data to support a marketing authorization for these drugs. It was a seamless phase two, three trial. Um, it had to redesign itself a couple of times because after it started, um, the first immunotherapies uh, were approved for treatment. So the standard of care, which was the comparator arm in those trials, had to switch. Um, but the nice thing about master protocols is all of the drugs that are being studied under this one umbrella protocol uh, can be, um, they, they usually take advantage of central governance. So a single lung map steering committee could make a decision to redesign the study and all of the all of the drug products that are in the master protocol then have agreement of how to go forward. So you have one steering committee instead of five, for example. Um, there have been master protocols in many other disease areas, um, Alzheimer's disease, um, antib antibacterial disease, the Ebola, uh, the first Ebola trial uh, a few years ago when the outbreak in West Africa was so horrific. Um, testing ZMAP versus palliative care. That was built as a master protocol. Uh, the, in that instance, the outbreak died down before uh, this trial could complete or any other drugs could be added to the platform. But the more recent Ebola trial comparing four drugs without a control uh, followed also a, a master protocol type design. The um, this, is, this remains an area that I'm, that I'm excited about. I give a lot of talks about it. It is um, not for the faint of heart. Master protocols require a lot of upfront investment. Um, first, you have to get collaboration among drug companies to bring their products to the table. <laughs> they have to be willing to play ball with everybody else. Um, you have to, it helps to get patient groups behind you. Um, it, you have to invest a lot of, there's a lot of give and take trying to build the right study design. They're great places to have innovative trial designs because you've got, um, you've got multiple treatments. You can think about trying to find the best drug uh, for a given tumor type, or you can think about trying to learn about the patient profile that would be best targeted by a particular drug. Um, and there have been a lot of really good statisticians working in this area. So we've had, we have had some uh, very, exciting trial designs come through with master protocols. I will mention when I came back to UNC in 2018, I joined a project team uh, for an NIH trial funded by the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, looking at um, targeted therapies for uh, severe asthma. And believe it or not, we're running a master protocol. So the master protocols sort of followed me over, I guess. <laughs> Actually, I think they settled on the design before I joined the team. Uh, but this is quite exciting because now we're running a master protocol. We've got up to six drugs targeted. We've started recruitment in uh, late December with the first two drugs. We plan to bring the other two on, other two treatments on in just a couple of months. Um, there's a website you can go to to read about the study. 
And it's a different atmosphere because this is an NIH funded study. It's not coming from um, the pharmaceutical industry, but we are testing pharmaceutical products. And then the last thing I'll say about master protocols is I mentioned that they were attractive to patients. Um, what I have seen at FDA and since I've been at FDA is that patient advocacy groups uh, are sometimes or often the catalyst behind a master protocol. It's the patients who, who want so badly for drug development to be more efficient so that um, the, the effects of drugs can be discovered or characterized more accurately and in a more timely fashion. And because of that, um, there are several master protocols. There's one being developed in Duchenne disease, for example, that is sponsored by the patient advocacy group. And even if you go back to lung map, the lung cancer uh, master protocol that I worked on while at FDA, the Friends of Cancer Research, which is a patient advocacy group, was the catalyst behind that master protocol and brought the sponsors to the table, got the FDA on board and so forth. I'm on an oversight committee for lung map and they just published their five years uh, sort of track record in the cancer letter. So another resource if, if people wanna find out more about it. Now, master protocol is just one area that happens to be uh, sort of ripe for innovative trial designs because of the terrific undertaking and the promise for precision medicine. Um, and, I, and let me mention one other thing about the asthma trial. In addition to the platform trial and trying different interventions for severe asthma, letting the interventions come and go based on when they're ready to enter the trial. And if there's low probability of success, then they'll leave the trial and let another uh, product come on to the trial. But there's another aspect of, of um, that trial precise that's exciting and it's a precision health aspect. Um, as you can imagine in severe asthma, we know a lot less about targeting patients than we do, say, in oncology, where we can type the tumor with uh, different tests for mutations. So there are hypotheses about interventions working on different subgroups of severe asthma patients, but we are actually building in a learning-as-you-go precision health analysis so that we start the study randomizing uh, treatments to patients based on the patient being in the subgroup that the treatment should work for, but we're also enrolling patients who are not in that subgroup and letting them receive the treatment. And then we're doing analyses in the middle for what I call the marker positive, marker negative patients to see if we have the right subgroup or should refine it. So this subgroup refinement is meant to inform us on which patients should be targeted by a particular treatment. And so that's kind of exciting. It's a, it's a little bit of a novel aspect of the precise study design is to have this adaptive precision medicine analysis throughout the trial. And then at the end of the trial, we hope to be able to make a statement about exactly which patients should be targeted uh, by the particular interventions that we're studying. All right, so, so there, I mentioned master protocols. I, you know, my you can tell what my passion is by how long I talk about them. <laughs> but they are just one aspect of innovative trial designs. There are many others. Um, and you don't have to have a master protocol, obviously, to innovate. I know um, when we were designing the CID program at FDA, we had we mentioned several things. One one idea was to try and see if there were innovative ways to take external data on control patients and possibly leverage it in conjunction with concurrent controls in a randomized trial 
to see if there would be some efficiency to be gained there and what exactly the best statistical methods are to do that kind of leveraging, whether it could be adaptive. Uh, that was of interest. There is also a push to to see if you can leverage even other information. I know on the part of pharmaceutical manufacturers, at least in some companies that I have worked with, um, when you're making decisions internally about which drugs you want to take from phase one to phase two to phase three and ultimately to an NDA, uh, you build on what you know about the drug. And, and sometimes this internal development path could be uh, quite Bayesian in that regard. Uh, you know, we saw a lot of Bayesian trial designs in phase two studies at FDA because they were often the, the, way, the most efficient way to come up with things like dose finding and in phase two and uh, or worrying about, um, you know, escalating dose designs and finding toxicity levels in early phase cancer trials. There are several Bayesian trial designs that are particularly well suited for that. What we didn't see at FDA are Bayesian trial designs in phase three so much. And there were a lot of reasons for that. A big one being that I don't think industry ever trusted FDA to take one of those. <laughs> so that was another part of the CID program was to try and get clarity around what FDA would and wouldn't take. Um, and the, the, the trick there is that a fully Bayesian design is gonna probably have an informative prior from some source or another. It could be prior information on how the control group will change in the absence of treatment. It could be prior information from earlier trials, um, actually looking at those treatment effects and seeing if there's a way to leverage that knowledge to uh, come up with the current trial design. And an example of this that um, is easy for people to see why Bayes might really buy you something here is looking at pediatric drug development. There, it may, it's often the case that a drug is developed for adults. The drug is studied in adults. There's reason to believe because of similarity of disease and similarity of the mechanism of action of the drug that it might also work in children, um, but it needs approval. It needs a label for children. And there have been a number of efforts on the FDA's part to encourage sponsors to study drugs in children because you can always use a drug off label and we'd rather know what the drug does in kids and have it on the label than just have it used off label without really knowing if it's safe or effective. Um, that being said, there have, you know, it's hard to study kids um, and dr the trials sometimes are underpowered. So there was an interest to see if, if you could take the results from an adult study of a drug and if there were enough similarities between adults and kids and the way the drug works that you could possibly um, run a Bayesian pediatric trial that formally incorporated the effect in adults to the effect in kids uh, through the Bayesian design and analysis, and that thereby would lower the sample size you would need for the pediatric trial. So the FDA statisticians um, that I worked with um, came up with some example cases, gave talks on this, and this was quite exciting. So I think one of the areas of complex innovative designs that FDA was hoping to um, get some input for our, or get some uh, experience with in their review work uh, is this use of formal Bayesian analysis in place in areas like adult to pediatric drug development, possibly also rare diseases and, and other areas. So um, that is that's the complex innovative design project, or at least part of it. <laughs> um, any, any questions so far, Glenn, or 
I guess I'll pause for a minute. Yeah, I like this a lot. One, uh, I guess the only problem with interviewing you is that you tend to actually answer my questions uh, in advance. A lot of the things that I was going to ask had down my little notepad. Yeah, you just sort of tick them off in, in real time, which I appreciate. Um, the uh, So actually, the, there's a you gave us a lot to digest, uh, and maybe it would be fun to go back and talk about some of these things. One, I really like the distinction you made about the innovative design and essentially when you have non-analytic power calculations that are necessary. That's actually an issue that's popped up on a lot of the other podcast episodes, not surprisingly, including the ones with, for example, Martin Ho uh, and um, uh, among other people. Um, and we actually did a uh, step wedge trial design episode, I guess, last week um, uh -huh. that, uh, that they're talking about some of the uh, statistical packages that came out to help calculate that. And I think it's a really interesting area because not only for power calculation when the trials go according to plan, but, you know, power calculations when the trials don't go to plan seems to be something where, frankly, industry would probably want that as much, if not more, because as the trial, as the aspects of the trial become more complex, you're bringing in more types of data sources. If you want to bring things like wearables, um, the number of places where a patient can deviate from what you want scientifically increases. Patients aren't lab rats. You know, they're, they're human beings. They have their own plans. Um, sometimes they, they even seem to have their own protocol in mind um, with, with, with what they'll do. Um, yeah, so there, there's an adaptive trial right there. But um, I, was, I was curious a bit, um, when, you, when you mentioned that, just to uh, skip over something you mentioned a bit more recently, you mentioned the um, the Bayesian adaptation from uh, an adult group to a pediatric group. And you said, you know, when we know that the physiological or the biological mechanisms are sufficiently similar between an adult patient and a, a child. And I, I'm just curious a bit, um, are those like just things that you sort of check off where you say, okay, we know the, how these two mechanisms work and they're sufficiently similar and they're for categorically they're the same than we use priors or is there also an element to this where they say they're sufficiently similar and we actually incorporate that into a prior over what the effect size or the effect difference might be um is it one thing or is it you know uh, just the combination of words it just says these are good enough if we put it now we just put a prior according to the end result or is there actually a prior over the biological mechanism as well yeah that's a good question and i you know i think um, I think that we're just, we're still learning about what's best in a regulatory environment. I can tell you a couple of things. Um, one, one that is related to this, when I was at FDA, um, I set up a inter interagency personnel agreement, uh, the first one in CEDAR actually, to bring Frank Harrell from, he was at the time chair of biostatistics, biostatistics at Vanderbilt, to bring Frank on board, we paid part of his salary and had him come into the office to give us talks about a lot of things, not just Bayesian uh, clinical trials, but basic information like uh, topics like to dichotomize or not dichotomize a clinical outcome, which I'm sure you know Frank's opinion on that. He has a great uh, Twitter account with all these things. But anyway, um, and Frank actually helped us with with the first example we used for the adult to pediatric uh, formal Bayesian borrowing. And we had, a, we had an application that we uh, ran the uh, sort of retrospectively uh, went back and said, okay, let's pretend like this is 
we're going to run a Bayesian trial because the, the adult trials were over and the pediatric trial, which failed, uh, it was underpowered. It had an effect size that was quite large, but it, it didn't have enough power to get significance. We Those had already been run. So we had to go back and kind of simulate what could have happened. And if you had used the adult data, that you know, adult to get the drug on the market, there were two fully powered adult studies. If you had used the adult data as prior, basically you wouldn't even need a pediatric study. It overwhelmed the the study. Um, and in that in that case, we said, okay, then let's let's do something else. And Frank suggested that we talk about an applicability index. Let's say that we consult with experts and decide the adult data is half half applicable. It's like 50% close enough. So we'll downweight it. So we did a bunch of simulations downweighting the prior information uh, to see. And of course, we're just playing here. We're not actually designing a study <laughs> to see if we could come up with something reasonable you could recommend. And so the statistical reviewers, there were two working on this, um, actually went out to the clinical reviewers in FDA and uh, elicited priors from them, sort of. I mean, they we did an interview. We did a, an interview. We talked to people who were expert in the disease area, but not necessarily in pediatrics. And we talked to pediatricians who were expert, not necessarily in the disease area. And then we got their um, viewpoints or opinions about how similar the disease was and how likely it was that the drug would have the same mechanism of action. So we used those then and did the simulation exercise. Now, if this were the real world and you hadn't run the pediatric study yet and you were working on the adult study, what would happen or what I think should happen is you would do sort of the same thing. You would elicit um, uh, information about the strength of this, this relationship between adult and peds and go to the experts to do this. And then you would talk to the, the FDA and you would say, you know, what is a reasonable amount of downweighting we need to do for this very powerful adult data to get the drug on the market? Um, because you want to study some children, you don't want the priors to overwhelm. So, so there would be, there would be a lot of work that would have to get done ahead of time. And I don't, I don't have an exact answer, but I think it's very exciting. And I'll have to, I'll have to say this, you know, this idea was not new. Um, way back in 2000, um, I think it was 2004, there was a conference that FDA put on um, at the NIH auditorium. I remember it like it was yesterday. And Janet Woodcock, Bob Temple, Bob O'Neill, a number of uh, Greg Campbell, a number of FDA statisticians were there. Mark McClellan had been the commissioner. And there was an interest all the way up to the commissioner about whether Bayesian designs and Bayesian statistics could inform drug development because they had started being used in device development. And if you had Martin Ho on, you know about this. And that was largely under the tutelage of Greg Campbell in CDRH. Um, and in that, one of the papers given, in, or one, one of the talks given in that conference um, was by Steve Goodman and Joel Greenhouse. They wrote, and, and the talks from that conference are published in a special issue of the old cl Control Clinical Trials Journal, now Clinical Trials. But Steve Goodman and Joel Greenhouse came up with um, this whole idea of formally borrowing treatment effects from adult trials to design uh, children trials. And they used as an example the Guillain-Barre syndrome and talked about how you could, you could go from adults to kids and what kind of questions you would have to ask, as you're saying 
about whether the disease is similar and the drugs are similar. And those two papers are just classics in my mind. I, anybody that's interested in this, I always refer them back to those 2004 papers. And in fact, we, we leaned on that quite heavily when we were doing the simulated exercise at FDA on the application that we did. Yeah, the um, the issue uh, when you mentioned the applicability index, um, it actually reminded me quite a bit of the work that when we do, for example, in machine learning, where we have an algorithm that's essentially making autonomous decisions and or at least some type of autonomous interest. Um, the inference of the statistical model, uh, so for example, statistical fitting could be entirely autonomous. Uh, then there's the subsequent decisions or conclusions that it arises after that statistical inference and, for example, evaluating further data with respect to that new model. And one of the problems is that, you know, data can come in, it can drop out. It can be very different from where we trained it versus what the data is available there. And when you mentioned that, it actually reminded me quite a bit about, well, these other times where we want to apply a more sophisticated method, but we aren't exactly sure when it stops being useful. So it's, again, one of those things where it's like, yeah, well, what do we do? Uh, I don't know. We'll just make like a signal quality index on it where it's just at this point, the quality's dropped out. We're no longer good. But, you know, um, it, it, it is interesting how it's a fairly similar idea. Um, obviously, they're all, it, it's a similar idea about how to use such a metric, but it's across fairly different areas where it's just saying it's like, okay, we want to start using something different, but we need a warning that this is going to be bad, uh, when it's going to be bad. So I thought I thought that was really interesting um, that, that you mentioned that's that. A, that's a good parallel. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. One other one other bit, though, I thought about uh, thinking about priors and sort of it's a question about why in different areas of, I guess, pharmaceuticals versus, you know, biologics. It's not a versus, but, you know, in between um, when we're looking at devices versus biologics, for example, in devices, we think that you know, priors aren't something to be feared. They're frankly necessary to make sure that our models are even in the ballpark of what's right. Because, you know, when we're collecting very high frequency data, um, you want that prior just to make sure that your model stays in the realm of sanity. Where, because, you know, if you're collecting data once every second or every fraction of a second, um, the, the prior gets washed out very quickly. And mainly it's just deciding where things just go completely crazy. Whereas in biologics and other of these trials where, you know, data is vastly less available uh, simply because, you know, it's on the patient level or it's multiple observations on a single patient. Um, the prior can play a lot. There's a, more of a fear that the prior can play tricks on the final outcome. Um, but then I guess one of the counter arguments to that is saying, well, if you're some, if someone's trying to manipulate the prior to actually change the outcome, Surely that would be also fairly obvious, right? Because, you know, it's not like it's not like someone can hide the prior on you. You're stating it. Um, and so I, I was curious about, from your perspective on that, is, do, you, do you think people are particularly, like, worried about manipulation of the prior? Or is it is it just trying to make sure that they're interested in seeing where the, where the bounds of the prior can be and just sort of doing, I guess, more of a um, sensitivity analysis if they are going to use a Bayesian approach? I think that I liked your fear of prior. So here's how I see it. So the FDA wants to approve drugs that work, right? And the fear is that they'll approve a drug based on spurious conclusions. And they've worked very hard over the last 20, 30 years to come up with all kinds of 
safeguards against that. The sponsor has to pre-specify uh, their primary analysis, their endpoint, their analysis method, um, their time of analysis, everything. So that you really, there is really no way that you can cherry pick a bunch of results and just present to the FDA the best stuff, which actually probably happened a long, long time ago, but not in a, not in decades. I mean that the basically they've they've eliminated that problem through pre specification. Now we know that you know, as you have said a couple of times, things don't always go the way you want it to, and you can have a really nice pre specified analysis, but then half your people drop out, and now what do you have? <laughs> So there is still, you know, uncertainty with what comes into the agency to review. But there, I think there is a, I don't know if it's fear, but what they're trying to guard, what what FDA tries to guard against is um, a spurious result and then a result that can't be replicated. And so the, you know, the idea, the, the traditional approach is that you find doses that are safe and effective in phase one and phase two you find early evidence of efficacy in phase two that warrants you moving to phase three in a much bigger population, bigger trial. And then you run two phase three studies to replicate a result. And then, you know, we feel pretty good that the drug works. We've seen it twice and it goes on the market absent any safety concerns. With priors, you're using information again. And so there's worry that if you use the same information over and over again, you haven't replicated the result. And, you know, I think it's just as simple as that. Um, and that's what has to be worked out. That's why I think the adult to pediatric borrowing, some borrowing possibly in rare diseases, uh, borrowing maybe across disease subtypes that are similar, borrowing across uh, other dimensions or, you know, can maybe even just borrowing control patients, that's a lot easier. There's less worry there. Borrowing the treatment effect itself, unless you're in an adult to Pete or some similar setting, is what causes concern because you just you just don't want what if you what if what you saw was spurious and now you're going to borrow it to apply to the next trial and you're not really then replicating fully. And that's that's the fear. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, that's that's a really uh, that that's a, I think a really good way to put it in a very interesting facet of this because you know you can imagine for example if you were just to give a toy example if you were observing patients longitudinally and you observe them at one year two years and three years you, you wouldn't combine those values and say ah oh, we replicated this three times you'd say we did it once you know um, yeah yeah so I I can definitely appreciate that and especially the aspect of whether or not you are passing on the prior information from the ultimate, the effect size, the thing that you're ultimately making a go, no-go decision on versus if it's other aspects of the information. So, you know, if you are passing it along through other sources of data, because, yeah, you could you could definitely see if you had, uh, for example, just a severely degenerate case in your initial study that provides such strong evidence, you wouldn't want that to be just going in poisoning is probably too strong of a word, but highly influencing the total calculation of effect size in later studies. You basically find like the one patient for whom these are effects are magical. And a simple example would be if they um, just had a specific biomarker that was highly affected by a particular um, treatment. And then when you have these wider patient groups, and it isn't specified that they are a specific subgroup of the, all the patients, you wouldn't want that influencing your estimate for how well it works on everybody else. You would essentially be testing it for one subgroup 
early on and then generalizing it falsely for larger subgroups afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really cool. For people wanting to follow up and learn a little bit more about the topics that you've just brought up, who should they be looking into? Oh, thanks a lot for that, Glenn, because I am not still at FDA. Um, the Complex Innovative Design, Design Program, Dion Price, who's a biometric division director at FDA, terrific statistician, also one of our vice presidents of ASA, I have to make a plug there for professional societies. Um, Dion is overseeing the CID program and the pilot program in conjunction with John Scott, who is the director of biostatistics um, in the Center for Biologics, where vaccines and other blood products are, um, are reviewed. And so both of those, and they, uh, John was heavily involved along with Greg Levin, uh, one of the deputy directors in biometrics in my old office, in getting the adaptive design guidance out the door and um, very brilliant writing in that guidance, I think. And then John Scott also was quite involved in the more recent guidance about how to interact with FDA on CID. Um, the couple of people, other people just I know working in this area, Mark Rothman, uh, I, when I give my talk in California, I'll talk about one of the initiatives, I didn't have time to go into it, um, that he's been involved in um, under the Drug Snapshot Program, uh, trying to come up with better subgroup estimates for uh, demographic groups wanting to know whether this drug works for me or doesn't work for me. Um, and Mark has led some very innovative methodological work at FDA, and he was involved in the pediatric um, trial simulation, along with two reviewers, uh, James Travis and Jingjing Yi. So um, both of those, there, there are so many, I mean, I'm a big cheerleader for FDA. Um, I think it's a fabulous place to start your career if you're just getting out of grad school with a new PhD and or master's um, degree. And I think the people there do such incredible work uh, in a time like this where our conference is postponed for the coronavirus emergency. You know, this is when you realize all of these statisticians working at FDA, um, they have an impact on public health. If there's a vaccine developed for coronavirus, they'll review it. <laughs> we will have them to thank for getting that on the market. Um, there are other initiatives. I didn't go into the real world evidence initiative, which is used a lot in safety evaluations and people are interested in how to use more real world data to supplement the evidence to support effectiveness of a new drug. Um, but Mark Levinson, one of the biometrics division directors there that I really enjoyed working with, he's just done some incredible work, he and his staff um, in the real world evidence area. He is the point person for the Office of Biostatistics for the real world evidence initiatives, also one of the FIDUFA6 um, initiatives as well. And there are too many others that I can't name, but those at least are some folks that I worked with while at FDA and have carried on after I left. Uh, and they're, they're just doing good stuff. Great, Lisa. Well, you've brought up a lot of really interesting things today. Um, I'm really interested to see what you have to say at the California conference. I actually just very quickly made a completely well, maybe not so random connection, that the last time I spoke to you in person was actually exactly a year ago today um, at the, yeah, weird, at the SAMZ um, Precision Medicine Roundtable. Oh, of um, course, of course. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, anyway, well, weird, weird connection to make right at the end. I'm glad I didn't forget it, like, uh, anyway, <laughs> but yeah. Well, uh, Lisa, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate you coming on the show. It's great to have you on, um, and... 
we will definitely look forward to having you back some other time. All right. Thank you so much, Glenn. I appreciate this opportunity. Have a great Hope day. To see you soon. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, folks, it's Glenn. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pod of Asclepius. If so, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button for a small channel and every bit helps. If you have a department, a lab, or even just friends who would like this episode, definitely forward it along. I don't have any of those things, but if you do, you should definitely celebrate by sending them an episode. We've got plenty of episodes on healthcare topics, particularly in data science and machine learning, so check out the other episodes on the channel or some of the playlists. You can also check out our website to join our mailing list or see our sponsors. Thanks so much to our sponsors for their support. And while the views discussed on the show are undoubtedly scintillating, they don't necessarily represent the views of our sponsors, the speaker's employer, my views, your views, my neighbor's cat's views, your cat's views, or anyone else not saying the words. In fact, they might not even represent the speaker's views by the time you're hearing it, so be sure to subscribe in case they come back onto the show to change their mind. See what I did there? Thanks again.